Well, uh, this morning, uh, yes, I am. I really am. I'm going to finally conclude this message on the secret uh, to contentment. Uh, if you're visiting, we've been going through a book study of Philippians. We're right at the end of that study. Matter of fact, after today, there'll just be one remaining message uh, after today, and that'll bring our study, this marvelous study in Philippians, to a uh, conclusion. So you, uh, you have in your notes there the, the, the secret to contentment that we've been working through. Also, please notice on the back side, don't look at it now, but we have given you an elders update, and uh, all of those things are important. You need to check that out as well. But uh, right now, you focus on your uh, sermon notes, and you'll notice the first two points we've already covered. So I'm just going to very quickly review those first two points, and then we will uh, deal with that third and final point as we bring this message to a conclusion on contentment. We're looking at the fact that there are three things necessary for us to come to that place of contentment in Christ, where and when we say contentment in Christ, to come to that place where we understand the sufficiency of Christ. And we get to that place where in the authenticity of our faith and in our experience, we can say, God is enough. That I find my satisfaction and my delight in God and God alone. I, I don't find my joy in circumstances but I find it in my relationship with Him. And uh, notice, of course, as we've seen Paul in this passage says this is something he had to learn. Uh, this just in automatically ours uh, when we're converted. Uh, as we've been looking, uh, this only happens through trial and experience. But there are, there, are, there are three things we need to understand, we need to learn to come to this place of contentment. We've looked at the first one, viewing needs as opportunities uh, to look uh, to God's providence. And just for the sake of time, just look at that statement with the asterisk. Providence, of course, speaks of the provision of God as He takes the all things of life and orchestrates them to accomplish His purpose in the life of His child. Uh, we looked at a number of examples of God's providence, as you see there in your notes, different uh, biblical uh, characters, and one of the things we, we really drove home in dealing with God's providence is that, yes, God has a plan for you as a believer. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to walk in those works He has pre preordained for you. And because He has set His love on you, because He does have that plan, He has literally foreseen, by means of His omniscience, Every crisis, every need, every adversity, every decision, every failure you will ever experience. And in foreseeing that, He's already made provision for you. And it's our joy as believers to walk along that course God has uh, planned for our lives and to discover that provision to enable us to accomplish His plan and His purposes. But we saw God's providence is often, from our perspective, what? A mystery. And we saw that especially in these examples, uh, that although uh, God has a plan and, and, and we know the beginning and the end because we know these full stories, for us, right now, we're in the middle of the story. And often in the middle of the story, you don't understand the plot. Uh, from your perspective right now, there is no rhyme or reason. And you don't know what the end of the story is going to be. 
And uh, we've driven home the fact, and I think this is one of the main truths we've even seen in the entire book of Philippians, that it's a sovereign God's business to determine how your story ends. It's a sovereign God's business to determine the plot, to determine the plan. So we're not to focus on outcomes. We're to focus on Jesus, becoming like Him, keeping our eyes on Him, uh, trusting as we do, God will be faithful. And then the second thing we saw is we need to receive trials we're talking about adversities, we're talking about suffering, we're talking about pain, we're talking about problems as opportunities to learn Christ's character. Uh, Paul said in uh, verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know also how to live in prosperity. In, any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And that next statement in your notes, I already alluded to this a moment ago. Notice, contentment is not acquired at salvation, but only learned through time and trial. And so to learn contentment in any and every circumstance, God has to place me in a variety of situations, both good and bad. That's why James says, count it joy when you fall into what? Various trials and tribulations. And that word various means multicolored, of all shapes and sizes and various intensity. And so because God is committed to teach you contentment, because God's primary goal in your, in your life is to bring you to that place where you can say, Jesus is sufficient. That Jesus is enough for me. Where you can truly say, I don't look for joy in circumstances, but my relationship with Christ. And regardless of my circumstances, because I have Jesus and no one can take him away from me, I know delight, I know sufficiency, I know adequacy, I can rest in that. Again, not so much striving after more faith, but what resting in the faithful one, abiding in that vine and drawing our life uh, from Him. And so because that is God's goal, He, he has to uh, orchestrate and allow us to go through a lot of different circumstances, many of which are painful. Uh, otherwise, we would never have the opportunity to learn that He is sufficient and, that, and learn contentment in Him. And then last week, and I'll, and I'll do this real quick. This is not in your sermon notes. I didn't have room to get it on the paper. Last week, we looked at six ways that God uses adversity for the good of the believer. And let me just mention those real quickly in case you weren't here. You can just jot them down on the side of your notes. I tried to put them in little pithy terms so that you could just... Uh, quickly get down and, and memorize. Of course, he, yes, he does use adversity as a rod of discipline. As believers, there are times when we drift, when we sin, when we fail. And so, yes, one of God's ways with adversity is using as a means to get our attention. And in getting our attention to bring correction to our lives and uh, bring us back uh, to depending upon Him, trusting Him, following Him, knowing His sufficiency. We, secondly, we saw that He uses it as a pride buster. That again, uh, when you came to know Christ, yes, you were justified. You were legally pardoned and reconciled to God. But, uh, and, and your full sanctification and glorification is guaranteed. Uh, but experientially, we grow up into that. And uh, every one of us, we need to re realize when we become converted, uh, praise God, we're justified. Praise God, He 
does a work in our hearts, giving us a new heart that hungers and thirsts after Him, but we still struggle. We're still sinners. Sinners saved by grace, but still sinners, struggling with selfishness and pride and self-centeredness. And we looked at the example of Paul, where Paul said, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And Paul gave the reason God gave him the thorn in the flesh. He said, to keep me from becoming proud. And notice, Paul didn't say, he did this because I was being proud. What Paul is saying is, God knows me. He knows me intimately, inside and out. He knows my vulnerabilities. God knew I was vulnerable to pride. So he did a preemptive strike. He took the initiative to bring this thorn in the flesh in my life, to keep me from being pride, to fence me in, to drive me to him so that I would know desperation. I would know my true dependence upon him that would create in my heart a determination to follow hard after him, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death, to know the power of his resurrection. And so God knows your vulnerabilities. He knows my vulnerabilities. And so often he uses adversity, again, if you want to use that term, a preemptive strike, knowing that if he did not, uh, we would falter and fail in those areas. And so he, again, fences us in to drive us to himself. We saw third, he uses uh, adversity as pruning shears. Uh, remember we talked about a grapevine, just like us. If we're left to ourselves, we prefer what? Just more growth, growth, growth over against quality fruit. And we talked about our tendency to what? Get involved in just too many things. In other words, get involved in so many things, we're basically good for nothing. <laughs> and we're not doing anything with any quality. And we're not doing anything that has any eternal significance. So because God loves me, and remember, we saw pruning isn't discipline, it's not correction. He, he talks about the fact that we're bearing fruit. His desire is that we bear more fruit, so pruning if we're, it comes because we're doing something good. We are loving Him. We're desiring to follow Him. But again, He knows our tendency to so easily be distracted, drifted, to get involved in so many things that we lose sight of that which has eternal value and significance. So we often will get those pruning shears, and He'll deal with a relationship that He knows is not best for us. He might deal with a, an interest. It could be a million and, and one things. In other words... He's plopping off a lot of good things that are robbing us from the best. And the best is what? Jesus. The best is Jesus. And then the fourth thing we saw, uh, of course, is a refiner's fire. Uh, this is the heart of the truth that we've been looking at. That uh, he wants to build the character of the Lord Jesus in us. To be displayed through us. And remember, that's, that's one of the things... Um, we saw about God's providence, about God's plan. God's plan will be unique and different for every believer. But there is one common denominator for every believer. And that is, regardless of the unique aspects of God's plan for your life, the ultimate goal is to make you like Jesus. But don't forget this next statement. To make you like Jesus for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. That you would serve others as Jesus served us and express, express that love. And so we looked at a number of uh, verses and passages about how God uses adversity as a refining fire uh, to build Christ's character in us. And we looked specifically sort of how he does that. Like if he wants to build love into my life, 
what does he do? He brings a very unlovable person into my life, a very irregular individual, uh, and uh, to give me that opportunity. And, and see, because we don't understand God's ways, when this difficult person comes into my life, I see them coming, and I start running the other way. And God says, no, that person is my gift to you, to give you an opportunity to learn to love unconditionally as Christ loved. So don't stiff arm, don't run, receive it as a gift. Receive it as a gift. Um, you know, we talked about how does he teach us joy? By bringing sorrow and pain in our lives. It's the only way, that's the only opportunity to learn to be pushed to Jesus, to find that my joy is in him and not in circumstances, not in human relationships. Yet, praise God, we find a measure of joy and fulfillment in human relationships, and yes, even in circumstances. But he wants to teach us that ultimately our joy is in him and not circumstances or other people. If he wants to teach you peace, what's he going to do? He's going to put you in a storm so that you can come to learn the rest that's found in Jesus. And then the fifth way that he uses adversity is a faith builder, a faith builder. Uh, He wants to build your faith. That's why, by the way, God's plan, God's providence is a mystery. Since it is a mystery, and often you don't understand the plot, the rhyme or reason, you don't, you don't, really, you don't understand how the story's going. You have to trust. Virtually every day in a believer, there comes that point where you have to say, you know, I can't trace your hand right now. I really don't understand what you're doing, but I'm going to trust your heart. Knowing that you do have a plan. Know that you do have a finish, and when you finish a story, God, I know it's always good. So I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you, even in the, when I can't see you, I'm going to, I'm going to cling. I'm going to rely uh, on you and follow you. Uh, uh, we looked at that passage in 2 Corinthians from the Apostle Paul's life. I, I love that passage where it says, Paul says, we were crushed. You ever been crushed? He says, we were overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. He says, we thought we would never live through it. You ever been through an experience like that where you thought, I will never live through this? He says, in fact, we expected to die. But then I love this. This is how he concludes the verse. But as a result, here's what God was doing. He says, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely on God who raises the dead. So God, Paul said, God let me get to a place so low I had no place to look but up. So that I would learn the sufficiency of God, that there's nothing impossible with God. And then the last way we saw God use his adversity is as an open door to minister to others. As an open door. We talked about every pain that comes into your life. Every trial, every challenge, God wants to transform that into an open door of ministry. As you know God's grace in your adversity, in your trial, again, it's not just for you. He's bringing you that comfort. He's bringing you that strength. He's bringing you that encouragement. He's bringing you that guidance so that that can flow out of you as a river to others. That's the goal of God for every believer, for you to be an oasis of Jesus to others. You know, we, we talked about the vine and the branch. You don't only see a branch eating its own fruit. Jesus' life is to be reproduced through us that others find nourishment. Others find nourishment. And so again, when you put all those six things together, we're, we're back to that invaluable lesson. We're not to focus 
on outcomes. It's not for us to figure out the plan. It's not for us uh, to tell God how this story needs to end. That's His business. Uh, but we're to focus on Him, to become like Him. And, if, and I've, I know I've repeated this, but I think it's so important. Paul is the greatest example of this in the book of Philippians. Here's a man that's been imprisoned for four years. He has a Roman guard chained to him 24-7. So you ask yourself, I wonder how Paul is praying. I wonder what Paul is desiring God to do. What is Paul's expectations of God in his imprisonment? And Paul tells us. He says, this is my earnest hope and expectation. That I shall not be put to shame in anything. But that right now, even as always, with all boldness, Christ would be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is a man that has given the outcome to God, knowing that a sovereign God is too good to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, but he's also, again, too infinite to explain himself to our small, puny, finite minds. And so I said, I'm going to leave the outcome to him. So if God's planted me in prison right now, by golly, I'm going to root myself right here, and I'm going to blossom for Jesus. And, of course, you know the story through his witness. Some of those Praetorian guard came to know Christ. Through those Praetorian guard who were the elite bodyguard for Caesar himself, it says Caesar's own household became invaded and penetrated and captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says God has even taken my imprisonment, these circum terrible circumstances, and he's turned them for the furtherance and the advance of the gospel. Now, the third thing. In about five minutes. The third thing. Embracing challenges. I need to embrace challenges as opportunities to lean on Christ's power. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him who what? Through Him who strengthens me. And again, please don't yank that verse out of its context. In the context, that verse is dealing with learning contentment in any and every circumstance. Finding sufficiency in Christ. Uh, we often throw it out and try to develop this sort of success mentality that if you trust Jesus, you know, you're going to win every ball game. Or, you know, you're going to get that brand new car or that new home or whatever it might be. No, it's not saying that at all. That'd be a total misapplication uh, of this truth. You know, look at the next statement in your uh, notes. Challenges are intended not only to draw me near Christ, to rely on His strength, but also to provide a platform to reveal Christ to others. Very quickly, turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Matter of fact, these passages don't need a lot of commentary. They're pretty clear. 2 Corinthians 12 goes back to Paul's thorn in the flesh. And you remember that this was so painful for Paul. We really don't know what the thorn is. There are different people who have different beliefs. My personal conviction is I believe it's referring uh, to the Judaizers. And maybe, maybe one particular man who was focused on basically persecuting and taking Paul out. And he could just never escape. And I may be wrong. A lot of people think it was a physical adversity, like his eyesight. Uh, there, you know, I don't know. But whatever it was, it was painful. Because three different times, Paul says, God, take this from me. Heal me. Remove it from me. And, of course, God comes back and he says what? Paul, my grace is sufficient. I'm not moving it. You're going to live with it. But as you live with it, you're going to know my 
my grace. Look at verse 9. And he said, he has said to me, this is Paul's, uh, God's response to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For power is perfected in weakness. Now, look at Paul's response. Look at Paul's response. And this is the place we want to get to. He says, most gladly, therefore, notice his whole attitude changes. I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well, what's the next word? Content. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God uses those challenges, again, to help me see just how desperate I am for God, how I'm utterly, absolutely dependent upon Him, and I'm driven to lean on Him. And that's why God, because He loves you, He's not because He hates you, because He loves you, He will literally start kicking the crutches out from underneath you. See, we develop all sorts of, I I define a crutch as something that's a substitute for God. You know, it, it may be your marriage partner. It may be a, a, a spiritual mentor. Maybe your pastor. Maybe one of the. It could be a lot of things. It was your Sunday school teacher. I mean, crutches can be very good things. And God says, you know, I appreciate their ministry in your life and what they've meant, but I want you to learn to lean on me, to trust me. And so He will often do that. But notice He also uses challenges to provide a platform to reveal Christ to others. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Uh, Let me begin at verse 6. It says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, reference to creation, that's the same one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's conversion. He says, When His light penetrates our darkness and we're filled with the light, of His glory. But let's verse 7. But we have this treasure, this treasure of Jesus, in earthen vessels. Or we could say frail clay pots. Well, why does God do it that way? That the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death. For Jesus' sake, why? That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And again, I know I use this a lot, but Jeremy is back there. Just look at Jeremy. There it is. There it is. There's the illustration. Death works in him, but what have we experienced through his testimony? Life. And that's what God does in every adversity. What he desires to do in our lives. See, what he does, he takes you as a believer, and you have this glory this light of Jesus in this frail clay pot. So he takes your clay pot and he places you right there. And then he brings all these unbelievers around, believers as well, they're, and, they're, and they're watching you. And so what does God allow? He starts allowing some of them to throw stones. Whoa, God, why are you letting them throw stones at me? 
Why are you letting this adversity come, these problems, these trials, to break the frail clay pot? Why break the frail clay pot? That's, that's painful. That, that, that hurts. To release his light, life, and love upon a lost world that men and women, boys and girls, might be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that His church might be built up, edified, renewed, and revived. I love this, and I'll close with this. Two verses. 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul says, I love this, so I am willing, I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. Isn't that great? Paul's saying, I'm willing to endure any suffering, any pain. I'm willing for death to work in me if life will work in others. And God uses adversity that way in our lives. And then that last verse, Psalm 73, 28, it talks about the nearness of God is our good. And here it is, folks, if you want it in a very simple way. Whatever draws us nearer to God is good for us. And God desires to use adversity to do exactly that. Again, to drive us to Him. Bow with me in prayer. Father, uh, thank You for this uh, wonderful truth we've been looking at for, for a number of weeks now on the secret to contentment with Christ. And uh, Father, we know that when You instruct us that Your way of teaching us Your truth is then to take that truth and the understanding we've gained and give us a test. Put us in a trial. Bring adversity. To give us the opportunity to take that truth we've learned in our head and to work it into our heart, our life, and our experience. So, Father, we're going to trust you to do that. And, Father, thank you that when we cannot trace your hand, we can trust your heart. Thank you. You do have a plan. It's a good one. Thank you. When you end the story, when we allow you to finish the story, it's always a good finish. And thank you, even as Scripture says, those who put their faith in you ultimately will never, 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 never be disappointed. And yes, although we struggle with disappointment, disillusionment, pain and perplexity, thank you as we keep trusting, keep relying, even when it's mysterious, that in the end we won't be disappointed and in the end, just like James says about the suffering and endurance of Job, we will conclude that you are compassionate, you are merciful, you are good, and you are great, and greatly to be praised. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.